0: And I felt the railing pressing against my back just below my shoulder blades. I looked down. My heels were on the concrete. My toes were on nothing. I looked past my toes to the ground, 50 or so feet below. And on the ground I saw a rusted out chain link fence topped by three strings of barbed wire. As I was Standing there in that moment, the only thing that I could think from my collapsed perception was how far out would I need to jump from this bridge so I wouldn't land on that fence. Because I just didn't want it to, I just didn't want it to hurt anymore.
1: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network and this is Life Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC.
2: Well, my next guest on Life Matters, well, he didn't think his life mattered. Grade six, he first experienced symptoms of a mental crisis. By grade eight, he attempted suicide for the first time. Found himself like a yo-yo in and out of psychiatric wards, seven hospitalizations as a teenager, fed a cocktail of medicine. And then his struggles with depression became too much. As late one night, he found himself standing on the wrong side of an overpass, staring into a dark tunnel and a path to end his life.
0: Should I hang in there? for just one more day. That's a phrase that people always seem to ask themselves when they're suicidal, I've found. I asked it to myself and others with whom I've worked, young people today, they've asked it too. It's this instinctual word of hope. Should I hang on there for just one more day? For what? To be that crazy kid? I've already held on for this long and things haven't gotten any better. Why would I keep trying what hasn't been working? I'm not crazy.
2: And a stranger in a light brown jacket came up behind him and said, you don't look like you're doing so good there. Well, that man saved his life. And that story became a TEDx talk. Became one of the most popular TED talks of all time. Over 6 million people have been inspired by this story. And this man's quest that went from wanting to end his life to a life where he now helps others cope with their mental health.
1: Life Matters is also available as a podcast. Download and listen to the latest episode. Find it using your iHeartRadio Canada app.
2: Hi, I'm Tony Chapman, host of Life Matters, where I share stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And any time of the show, text me at 71010 and connect with me and share what matters most to you. To me, family matters most. I'm a father, two daughters are both happy and accomplished. I don't know how I would have dealt with one of my children so deep in depression that they felt their only way out was ending their life. And thankfully there's people like my next guest, Mark Hennig, who's there to help. Mark, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. You've done so much in such a young age. I mean, I'm not, I mean, your resume would take half my show, but a master's of science in child development a bachelor of arts with interdisciplinary honors in psychology and philosophy, certificates in trauma counseling, CEO of your own firm, Strategic Mental Health Solutions, previously served as youngest president for Provincial Canadian Mental Health Association. You've come such a long way, and I want to get into your story and what you're doing now, but part of what I love in Life Matters is the backstory. So take me back to You were born in Cape Breton, right? Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. That's right. Yeah. And when did you first as a child start realizing that you were experiencing these these mental crises, as you call it, or mental issues?
3: Well, you know, people first found out that I was suicidal, that I was struggling when I was 12 years old. Uh, But I think I'd been struggling long before that. You know, uh, by that point, people don't just become suicidal for no reason. Uh, It doesn't just come out of nowhere, no matter how unexpected it might seem. Uh, So I think I'd been struggling for years prior to that. Is
2: there anything that you remember back? then that sort of made you feel that you weren't the same or was you, you, things were different?
3: I recently, uh, or I should say over the last several years, tracked or, or tried my best to track what happened in those early years in the writing of my book, So-Called Normal, my upcoming book, and where I kind of triangulated around a, a couple of key factors. Uh, one was the breakdown of my home life when my father left and I felt like I had no stable male role models in my life to really show me how to become a man. Uh, and then when we moved in with my stepfather, being surrounded with a Sense of toxic masculinity where not only was it not normal to talk about your feelings, it was actively punished and discouraged. When I started feeling really strong feelings, I knew that I couldn't talk to anybody about it, so I turned it inside. And they say that uh, it's been said for a very long time that depression is hate turned inward. And I think that that's what I started to do, not having any ability to express myself.
2: So this started to continue to build. You have no place to turn, you have no outlet. And in grade six, You tried the first time to commit suicide using a knife that you stole. Uh, A
3: little bit later than that, but yeah. So actually, uh, people first found out that I was suicidal uh, when I was doodling some little drawings on the margins of a test uh, that I had written. And what I had started to experience by that point, due to some childhood sexual and emotional trauma, uh, was something called dissociation, where you're there, but you're not really there. Your mind kind of floats away because it's too painful to be in the present. What I started to do during one of these dissociations, associate of states was to draw these little uh, margin notes, I guess, of 10 different ways that I could die. And that's when, you know, they brought me to the hospital uh, when the teacher saw that. And my mother came along with me uh, and I looked at the nurse's notes that she had written uh, during the interview with me and my mother. And my mother had told the nurse, uh, she quoted in the notes, we didn't see this coming. Mark is a good boy. As though being a good boy and having a hard time are two mutually exclusive things. And, you know, I felt like I'd been struggling for so long up until that point that death was my only option. Yet still, my mother, the closest person to me, didn't know. So that's when everybody first found out, I guess. And since I grew up in a small town, everybody found out really quickly uh, that Mark was struggling.
2: How did your mother deal with uh, her marriage splits up? She brings in somebody new. can tell that there's obviously some tension probably in the family. How did she cope with that?
3: tracing my mother's development through the book, I think was very close with my own development as a young child as well. She was traumatized herself. My brother left our stepfather's house house first, and then my older sister left after that. And then me and my mother started to try to leave too. And I never understood as a young kid why she always went back. I was the youngest. She told everybody that I was her baby. So she always took me with her the more than dozen times that we fled to either my grandmother's house or an aunt's house or a you know, a hotel for a few days, but I never understood why she always went back.
2: What did it feel like for you as a young kid? Your mom takes you away. Maybe your grandmother's house, that's disruptive, but a safe haven. And the moment when you find out you've got to go back into that home.
3: I was... In hospital, I remember at one point, uh, three times in three months, you know, I would go in, I would get stabilized uh, for a suicide attempt or suicidal ideation. I'd be discharged back to my stepfather's house. Things would go okay for a week or two, and then the wheels would fall off again. I'd end up back in hospital. You know, they say that nothing changes if nothing changes. When my mother finally moved out for, we left for three months that time, and I didn't have a single hospitalization, I was stable for that entire three months that we were living outside the house. Uh, My mother brings me back to my stepfather's house. Within two weeks, I was back in hospital again. You know, I, I didn't feel safe at home. I didn't feel safe at school because the bullying that st- had started to accumulate. Uh, but there was something, I think, uh, codependent in, in my mother and stepfather's relationship that they needed each other. Uh, and unfortunately, I think the kids were collateral damage.
2: Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Life Matters. Text me at any time at 71010 or connect with me through my website at chatterthatmatters.ca. I'm talking to Mark Hanick, who struggled with mental illness in his teens We come back mark will share the night he found himself on the wrong side of an overpass in city nova scotia with a desire to end his life and how a man in a light brown jacket not only saved his life but because of that experience mark Hannock found a renewed purpose
3: one of them yelled out to me jump that was all i needed i let go of the railing and as soon as i did i started to fall i saw the stranger's light brown jacket wrap around my chest
1: life matters with tony chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio radio talk network
2: you me or nobody is going to hit as hard as life but it ain't about how hard you hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward how much you can take and keep moving forward
1: week, you can download the latest episode of Life Matters as a podcast from your iHeartRadio Canada app, presented by RBC. Now more with Tony Chapman.
3: But one of the things that people didn't really talk about in those times, or at least not to the people who were struggling, were things like depression and anxiety and how you were feeling, especially for a kid, especially for a little boy. At least they didn't talk to me about those things.
0: And every time I had expressed a desire to talk, I wanted to talk about how I was feeling, I felt like it was shut down. People weren't ready for that kind of conversation. I wanted to talk, but it seemed like nobody wanted to listen. And when you get that message so many times, you learn that it's not safe to talk. I'm
2: chatting with Mark Hanek, if you're just joining me, this is a gentleman who's doing such good on this planet but he wasn't doing so good as a child and as a teenager. Suicide attempts, yo-yo bouncing in and out of psychiatric wards, heavily medicated in a family unit that was not working because of a stepfather. And he finds himself in 2002, on the wrong side of an overpass, staring into the dark and a path to end his life. Mark, take us back to that night.
3: I'd been in and out of hospital um, more than a half a dozen times by the point that I found myself on the wrong side of the railing of a, of a bridge. and. I went to that specific place, like many suicide hotspots, because it had a personal significance for me. Uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia, used to be a steel town. It used to be uh, there used to be a massive uh, uh, steel plant there that all of my family had some connection to in some way or another. But by the time I was growing up, it was abandoned and toxic, and you know it was it wasn't torn down quite yet, but it was very clearly uh, about to be. And I think now that I went to that place because. I felt like I didn't have any person who got that. That's how I felt inside toxic and abandoned and collapsing. Uh, But that place got me. Uh, So when I went there, I climbed up over the railing of the bridge. And I remember I say this in the TED talk, too. The spot that I picked, because I had planned it out by this point, having gone through it in my head so many times, uh, I picked a spot next to a telephone pole so I could hold on to the telephone pole and guide myself over and stand on the edge, about an inch and a half or so of concrete on the other side of the railing. Uh, And I held on to the telephone pole because I didn't want to slip and fall. I didn't want it to be an accident. Because by this point in my journey, I'd been in and out of hospital for now for the last couple of years, I felt like I needed control over something in my life. I needed agency. I needed to uh, some say. And even if that choice was whether or not I was alive or dead, uh, it had to be my choice. I couldn't mess it up again. Uh, so that's why I did that. I climbed up over there. And and I think that sense of, of needing control and stability, because I felt so unstable at home and in, even in my own mind, uh, that that's what drove me to that place I needed some say in my life
2: so you is this also a message you might be sending to the people that weren't listening to you that, that that this was thoughtful this wasn't something that just happened because it was a bad evening but this this is really sort of the this is the way you want to say goodbye or did you find a way to, to, to leave goodbyes behind it you? you know it's I think it's a combination of both uh, that I had been
3: building this pathway in my mind for years. You don't you're not just born suicidal or, or knowing how to kill yourself. You kind of figure it out. As you go, as weird as that sounds, um, but then there's also this impulsive piece too. That you're building this cognitive pathway in your mind all the time of how you would do it, and and you you fantasize about it, you visualize it, you practice it in your mind. But then something happens, and what I've come to know them as as trivial triggers. It could be the most minor thing in the world, uh, you know, a, a simple argument or a, or a simple failure that seems simple to others, but for you, you've built up so much pressure inside you that it doesn't take much of a pinprick uh, to pop that bubble, uh, to really set that, that first domino in motion. And uh, I think that the more vulnerable you become, uh, the, that's what the definition of vulnerability, the more sensitive you are to those kinds of triggers. Um, so that's what had happened to me. I, I don't even remember what the trigger was this time, but it, it sent me to that place. It, it pushed over that first domino. And uh, I felt like so if all these smart people, all these doctors and psychologists and social workers who I'd encountered in, in the hospital, if all these smart people couldn't help me, maybe I was unhelpable. Maybe I was just one of those broken few. You know, I was raised Irish Catholic or at least a, a Newfoundland version of Irish Catholic uh, where I was told by my, my mother and my grandmother, maybe this is just my cross to bear. Maybe this is just the the burden that I need to carry. Well, I didn't want to carry this burden for my entire life. So I thought that this was my only way
2: out. You're standing over the overpass. What's going through your mind? I mean, you, you taught. You said you could even still today feel the temperature. So take us back to that moment when you're you've got, you've got that inch and a half of concrete. You're perched there. What what are you feeling and seeing, and what's happening?
3: There was a certain. The best way I can describe it is a calm rigidity that my my body uh, felt relaxed. It, you know, it looks like I was just kind of, I think, lounging there. Uh, but my mind was so tight and so collapsed. And when you get into that place, I think anyway, at least my experience is these blinders come on. I refer to it. It ended up being one of the more enduring, I think, ideas of the TED talk was this perceptual collapse that everything around you fades away and your body and your mind and your brain is just in this crisis mode. So you can only focus on this one thing. And for me, the one thing was that I needed to die, Uh, And it didn't matter if there were other options or if there was help available. Uh, None of that stuff entered my mind. Therefore, it wasn't available to me because I was so hyper focused on that one pinpoint of needing to die. So that's that's I think I was that's my, my mind's way of seeking stability was clinging on to that one point.
2: So a crowd begins to form around you and it's raining out, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It is a Sunday night in March And, and and the crowds coming around you. Do you sense that? Are they part of this or is it just, again, you're so narrowly focused in your mind that there's just shadows?
3: Didn't even hear them coming. It, it was the this stranger uh, who came up behind me, and I couldn't even fully see him either. I couldn't turn around uh, because I, there was practically nothing under my feet. But as he approached the railing, I could see his light brown jacket that he was wearing, and I, I couldn't see his face or anything like that. He was the first one to interrupt me. Uh, and then it was only after a little while of him talking to me about just the most banal things, you know, uh, my pets and my my hobbies and school and things like that, that it almost felt like that rigidity, that prison uh, that my mind had been trapped in started to soften and dissolve a little bit. And it was only then that I realized that the police had arrived, that they had set up, you know, there was a lot of police and they all had their lights on and they had set up wooden sawhorse barricades and crowds had gathered, uh, you know, because it's a, I think, a pastime in a small town to listen to the police scanner uh, to see if there's anything interesting happening. Um, And I didn't hear any of those people arrive until I started to kind of come back to reality a bit.
2: And you talk about someone yelling from the crowd. Just do it or just jump?
3: Call me a coward. He said to jump, you coward. And, and I, you know, I doubted so much of my, what I felt and what I thought uh, and my experiences of that time. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was just the out-of-tune radio sound that was always in my head, uh, but I could swear that there was a group of, I'm pretty sure, three young men. They were to my right uh, at, the, at the sawhorse barricades, uh, closer to the, to the railing side, and I could hear them laughing. Uh, and then they, they shouted this to me. They, he, one of them shouted, jump, you coward. And when he did, that's when I let go of the railing because this, this guy that was behind me, the guy in the light brown jacket, total stranger who was just talking to me and getting to know me. And it seemed to be working, whatever he was doing, because it was, it was making me more aware of my surroundings. But at that point, I mean, it's not so trivial, but it was one of those triggers uh, when that guy shouted for me to, to jump that I, I let go of the railing and I started to fall.
2: It's Tony Chapman you're listening to Life Matters we're talking to Mark Hennick it's an extraordinary story he finds himself over a bridge staring into a dark tunnel crowds are forming uh, some people are even idiotic enough to say coward just jump one person starts to as he says soften his mind and open his mind to possibilities it's a man in a light brown jacket when we come back we're going to talk about what happened because of that experience and also what happened when Mark many years later met the person that saved his life. you listen listening to Tony Chapman on Life Matters. Text me at any time at 71010.
1: Life Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the Radio Talk Network.
2: Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Life Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, the status of your health or car. When was the last time you did a check-in with your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in.
1: You're listening to Life Matters with Tony Chapman.
2: Welcome back to Life Matters. Text me anytime. Seven ten ten. Mark Henick, we're talking to. If you just join the show, I can just, uh, if I can do justice in a few sentences. Imagine being grade five, grade six, grade seven, grade eight, and not wanting to live, trying to commit suicide, in and out of psychiatric wards, dealing with a, a stepfather that continues to trigger you, and eventually saying, "I can't take it anymore," and standing over the edge of a bridge, and you're about to jump. Crowds forming, police are there, uh, you're completely focused on your task at hand and being in control of it. And a stranger shows up, and starts talking to you, puts his arm around you, and that was the moment when your life changed, right?
3: It changed forever. Not only um, did that stranger in the light brown jacket who had been standing behind me uh, reach out and grab me, not only did he save my life in that moment, uh, it actually ended up being a pretty pivotal moment uh, for the rest of my life, that he, I credit him with giving me my entire life. Because when he grabbed me, he wrapped his arm around me, and I could remember seeing the ground come toward my face and then seeing his light brown jacketed arm wrap around my chest. And he pulled me back, and I hit the railing so hard that my feet flew out from under me, and I just dangled over the side of the bridge for a minute. And then I felt another hand grab my my back, and I was pulled backwards over the railing, and I was completely limp, they said later, like I had just, everything had had left me. Uh, and I was brought back to hospital, the basement psych ward where all the, just like in the movies, the cinder block basement psych ward. They kept me for 24 hours. They discharged me. I had become by that point, I think, what's known as a frequent flyer of the healthcare system, of the mental health system specifically. One of those people that the more help they need, the less help they get. They gave me a taxi chit and told me to go home. Nobody picked me up. They said to call my doctor in a few days to check in with him. Uh, there was no follow-up care. But something fundamental changed in me uh, that time, I think, when I left through the revolving door of the hospital. Uh, First of all, it was the first day of spring. And I don't know why that was significant to me, but it felt like a moment of rebirth. Uh, And I realized, I think, in the hospital that time that I had more choice in my life than than I thought that I had. I mean, the whole reason I went to the bridge was because I felt like I had no other choice. But I had the time to ruminate on these two complete strangers who were observing the exact same situation unfold in front of them, a kid at the most vulnerable point in his life, and they made two very different decisions. One was on the sidelines, and he chose to shout out and call me a coward, and one literally had my back and reached out and saved my life, and, you know, I I started to think that I could Choose which of those two men I wanted to be like myself—the one who chose to stand on the sidelines, or the one who chose to reach out and help others—and I think when I made that decision to be like the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life that night, i, I don't want to be Pollyannish. It's not like everything hallelujah changed overnight, and I was—and I was suddenly well. But that was the catalyst to a long process of recovery that carried me forward for the next more than more than a decade uh, of my life as I got involved with mental health advocacy proper.
2: What do you think allowed you to have that new path, that light shine out and say, I'm willing to follow that versus I just don't even want to put a foot forward.
3: I like to think of, uh, you know, my my decline uh, or as I got sicker and sicker as a kind of downward spiral. It just kept getting progressively worse each time building on the last time, even the suicide attempts. Then the recovery was the opposite. I think of it as an upward spiral, that there were small wins along the way that each got reinforced in a different way. So when I had decided I wanted to be like this stranger who reached out and saved me, I, I, it, it let go of this shame and stigma, I think, in some ways that I thought everybody, especially in a small town where everybody knows everybody anyway, everybody knew that I was struggling by this point anyway. So I decided just to open up about it and to own my story. I didn't think of it like that at the time, but I, I just did it. And I wrote my first ever op-ed piece to the Cape Breton Post. <laughs> the, I know that all your listeners are probably subscribers to the Cape Breton Post. Uh, and I, in it, I think I, I, I opened up about my own personal experience for the first time. I wanted to speak in my high school, but the principal said no, so I'm pretty sure in that article I I likened the high school administration to communist Russia for stifling my free speech (laughs) because I was a a precocious high schooler. Uh, And then the next morning there were television news cameras in the principal's office asking why we can't talk about suicide, why we can't talk about mental health when so many people are struggling.
2: So this becomes your new cause. We're going to spend some time talking about the wonderful things that you bring to humanity, but I just, before we get into it, It's 13 years later, you're on Canada AM, you're telling the story and you still don't know the identity of the man with the light brown jacket. But that, for some reason, that program made you realize this was the time that I had to find that individual. Why did he take so long? And how did it feel when you actually had that first moment.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, after I wrote that uh, op-ed to the Cape Breton Post, uh, so many people came forward to me and said that they'd struggled too, or they had a family member who did. And and that was kind of the juice that I needed, that not only was I not rejected for opening up about my experience, there was a certain celebration. And I felt I felt good about it. Uh, and I was had this building urge ever since grad school that I, I didn't know who this person was. I didn't even know if they were real, actually. And my, my secret was that when I stood on that famous red dot for the TEDx talk, and I talked about this stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life. I didn't even know if he was real. I didn't even really know because I had learned to mistrust so many of my thoughts and feelings at that time. It, this whole angel devil thing over my shoulders, it just seemed too much of a story. So when I decided to finally find out, I did a little bit of the bureaucracy. I pulled, you know, my medical records and the police records and there was no nothing of him there. But then I realized I, I already know how to do this. I can engage this conversation in public. So I asked a producer if I could come on Canada AM, and, and we talked about the story. They showed some clips of the TED talk. Um, I had nothing really to go on, just it was some stranger 13 years earlier who'd pulled a kid off a bridge. Within about an hour, I think, of that airing live, it goes viral all around the world. It gets picked up across the states and the UK and and elsewhere, uh, and I start getting messages on Twitter and Facebook and all these other social media sites. Uh, and then one pops up that says he knows who I'm talking about, that it's his brother-in-law. And then another one who said he was his, his roommate at the time, and he knew who I was talking about. The stranger came home and told him about what had just happened. And it turned out, his brother-in-law told me, that the stranger had actually just seen my TED Talk uh, a week before this. And a week before I went on national television to look for him, the stranger in the light brown jacket had already written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. So they asked if they could send me the letter, and they did. And I I recorded myself reading it, because I guess that's just what I do now, is, is record myself at the most vulnerable times of my life. And he introduced himself as Mike. And he told me back my own story from a different camera angle, basically, from his perspective. And, uh, and he told me about how he never knew that I was still alive until a week before he wrote, he saw the TED Talk, uh, he saw me on that stage.
0: As I stood next to him, I looked directly over the railing, seeing things. <laughs> As I stood next to him, I looked directly over the railing
3: seeing things from his perspective for the first time. I felt sick.
0: As I stood safely on one side, Mark was on the other, with just the heels of his shoes holding him on the ledge.
2: And he ended up pursuing a career, helping people as well, didn't he?
3: He did. So he ever since had been working in crisis intervention for young boys in a residential facility. Uh, just like me, I'd been working in mental health ever since as well. So we brought him up to Toronto and we brought Canada AM cameras along as well. And we actually got to meet in person and I got to thank him uh, for not only saving my life, but for giving me my whole life.
2: Talking to you, Mark Hennick. It's Tony Chapman on Life Matters. Text me anytime at any time at 71010. And this show is about ordinary people doing extraordinary things despite the circumstances. And I can't think of a better story to share than Mark's. Coming up after the break, I want to learn more about what Mark's doing to bring his message. So instead of people feeling like they have to push themselves away, they can pull themselves back into society. We'll be right back with Life Matters. It's Tony Chapman. Again, text me anytime at any time at 71010.
1: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. We'll be right back with more Life Matters with Tony Chapman.
3: And I know what I have to do now. Gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring?
1: Matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.
2: Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Welcome back to Life Matters. If you're just joining me, we're talking with Mark Hennick. He is uh, an extraordinary human being. Uh, he battled a lot of mental health issues as a, as a child to the point where he was in and out of psychiatric wards, a stepfather that would trigger him tried to commit suicide several times, was at the point of finality. He was standing over the edge of a bridge on an inch and a half of concrete. So Mark, tell me about what you're doing now and where do you feel you're finding purpose and and how do you know that every day you're spending is a good day?
3: I started a a non-profit, when I wasn't even out of high school yet, uh, as a way to try to share my story. And I started sharing the stories then. And then I got involved more formally in the Canadian Mental Health Association and uh, through the Students' Union in college. Uh, And then I settled in Toronto after grad school to work with kids, uh, 16 to 24 year olds actually, transitional age youth, because I wanted to be the person that I needed. Uh, in my, through my work with CMHA National Office, we were, uh, leading, uh, National Mental Health Week as a way to raise awareness because people don't seem to realize that, um, raising awareness, the function of raising awareness is to get people to reach out for help. If they're not aware, then they won't ask for help. Now, really going back to my roots and focusing on uh, my story over the last several years, I've been writing my book, hosting two podcasts, So-Called Normal and The Living Well Podcast from Morno Chappelle. I really have been focusing in on storytelling, on, on drawing out the stories of people uh, to show that there's no such thing as normal, <laughs> that we're all just figuring it out as we go uh, and that everybody has an interesting story to tell. I think that's what I've learned through this journey.
2: What about social media? Because social media seems to try to pen everybody within the Instagram frame or the Facebook frame. And I have the most interesting life. I'm the most exciting person. How many people liked what I had to say? Yeah, that has to be something you spend a lot of time thinking about as you try to counter encounter people face to face. Sure.
3: Well, I mean, you never see photo albums of funerals or you never see people's social media populated by all the worst moments of their life. Um, of course, they want to share their, their um, themselves in the most positive light. I, I don't think that that's entirely abnormal or necessarily even unhealthy in many ways until it reaches a point where the identity that they're creating for everybody else fractures from or is so divergent from their actual self uh, that it causes them difficulty inside. And I think we do see that, you know, and, and really interesting research has come out to To support that, that the more time you spend on Facebook, for example, uh, is correlated with higher rates of depression. Now, is that person who's spending all that time on Facebook escaping, or are they trying desperately to connect with other people and they don't know how? I think that's a a valid connection, so or a valid question rather. So we need to not only look at what might be happening biologically, we need to think about what's happening psychologically and socially with that person as well. Maybe they're feeling isolated because they are isolated. So we need to be able to attack the the biopsychosocial nature of mental health, too.
2: One of the reasons I'm doing this show is to counter the negative energy that's that's making everybody feel insecure, uncertain, life's impossible, because I do believe that, that stories like yours, where people, despite their circumstances, find a different path and purpose. What advice can you give the listeners? Because I know you do doing incredible, if you're ever doing a corporate event, this is a person you want to bring in. It, it's such a powerful talk. But what advice can you give the listeners in terms of how they can cope, how they can move forward and, and, and be more positive.
3: Yeah. First and foremost, I think you have to get honest with yourself. You have to get real with yourself uh, and ask yourself the question if you're happy uh, or if you're just coasting, if you're just doing it because you've always done it that way, uh, or if you've gotten used to being unhappy. I think that when you can actually ask yourself some of those tough questions, you can start to do and take some of the uh, often challenging steps that are required. You know, you have to – Uh, I was deeply informed in the writing of my own book by Dante's Inferno, this idea that you have to descend into the depths of yourself in order to later find paradise, that the work is hard and you have to be ready for that. I think we don't um, often engage with the work we need to do internally because it's so hard. So be brave, I think. Ask yourself tough questions and don't be afraid of what comes out. If you have something unprocessed in there, uh, there are professionals who can help you work through that and ideally to even give it meaning and do something more with
2: it. Hennick, a beautiful story. How would people get hold of you if they wanted to bring you in as a, as a speaker or to get more involved in the kind of content you put out?
3: Uh, I work with Speaker Spotlight. They do all my speaking with me and people are always welcome to contact me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, everywhere else
0: at Mark Hennick.
2: Mark Hennick, thank you so much for being part of uh, Life Matters today. Thank you, Donnie. Joining me now is Valerie Chart, Valerie is the Vice President of Corporate Citizenship for RBC. She has a lot to say about Mark's story, the youth and what we can all do to give them the choices they deserve. Valerie, welcome to Life Matters.
4: Hello Tony, so happy to be here. How
2: important do you feel it is that we make sure that the next generation of youth have choice?
4: It was such a such a powerful story. It really anchors the core of what we're trying to achieve ultimately i always equate choice in terms of an element of control if you can understand where you have control it helps you liberate some choices
2: everything i'm reading and hearing is saying that canadian youth are struggling more than ever with their mental health
4: mental health in youth is growing significantly
2: so what can we do
4: i would say brands and companies can start just by understanding their impact on youth mental health and really engage authentically on the topic, whether it be through their workforce, through their products and services, and through their voice. Anything else? One thing I would mention is Canadian youth are spending more and more time on devices, and there's an opportunity to also use the increasing reliance on screens in a positive way, to deliver meaningful mental health supports. We just published a guide in partnership with Homewood Research Institute on how youth mental health apps can help what you need to know when trying to find the right mental health app for you or a loved one.
2: One of the areas you're involved with is RBC Future Launch. What's that all about?
4: Future Launch brings RBC's purpose to life, which is to help clients thrive and communities prosper. It is our bold 10-year, $500 million commitment to prepare 3 million young people for the future of work in Canada. So over the next 10 years, we're dedicating our knowledge, our skills, and resources to help young people access meaningful employment. We learned a couple of things. There are four key pillars that really matter. Gaining practical work experience, developing good skills, networking, and mental well-being supports and services. And that's what wraps Future Launch in terms of delivering real utility, practical tools to young people.
2: Valerie, the board's lighting up by asking, how do I find out more about Future Launch?
4: The best place is to go to futurelaunch.org.
2: Valerie Chort, VP of Corporate Citizenship for RBC. Thank you for joining me on Life Matters.
4: Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Is your destiny a matter of choice or chance? Well, in Mark's case, it was both. Mark felt he had no choice other than to end his life. But by chance, two people were there that mattered the man in the light brown jacket who saved his life and the punk who yelled, coward, just jump. Mark realized that he could be much better if he followed the path of the man who saved him. I also learned how important it is to listen, talk, and tell people that matter to you how much they in fact matter. And finally, to realize that our collective strength as a nation is based on our individual strengths and our mental health. These times are challenging and we must all do more to help the people that need us.
0: If this story can, can help somebody and show them that, in fact, people do care about them, like this stranger seemed to care about me, a kid on the edge of a bridge, then I hope that makes it worth it. So, <laughs> here we go. If you're
2: interested in this recording or sharing it, download the podcast at iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts or visit me at chatterthatmatters.ca. I have a website populated with videos, podcasts, and posts focused on helping you get to where you need and deserve to go. It's Tony Chapman for Life Matters. Let's chat soon.
1: Life Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. You can also hear a brand new episode every Friday across your iHeartRadio Canada talk network.